Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend marks the third Sunday in the season of Lent. Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, the epistle from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, and in the gospel, we continue in John's gospel instead of Matthew. With John chapter 4, everybody's in verses 5 through 26, and then optionally, your pastor could add on this weekend verses 27 to 30 and verses 39 through 42. Now, I kind of phrased it that way because I'm not entirely sure why in the three-year lectionary here we, in year A, leave Matthew's gospel, which is our gospel for the year, and instead we take in a swath of John, but only really in the season of Lent. I mean, we do have John pop up in the season of Easter again, too. So we're going to see really more John now and more Matthew and Pentecost. But anyway, it is it is the pattern. We start in Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. It's only going to be one paragraph, but let me set the stage here for you first. If you can look at a map, this would be extra helpful. But otherwise, let me kind of draw the map for you first. If you can picture where Egypt is, northern Africa, the Nile River that comes down out of the Mediterranean Sea, on the eastern edge, you're going to have the Red Sea in the southeastern part. The Red Sea is going to have the two gulfs that come sticking up out of the north side of it, almost like a pair of bunny ears. And that land in between those gulfs is going to be the Sinai Peninsula. Where you cross from Egypt into the Sinai Peninsula, that land bridge between Africa and then really uh, the, the area that is the Middle East, that's the wilderness of Shur. And as you come down along that gulf, that western gulf, you're going to enter from Shur into the wilderness of Sin, S-I-N, and places there uh, that have been mentioned in the book of Exodus already in chapters 15 and 16 are going to include Rephidim, Elam, and so forth. Those are down that, that way. And so they've, they've passed down that gulf. They're near the southern part. I can't pinpoint it for you. We don't know exactly where in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula Rephidim would be, nor do we know where Sinai would be specifically although it would be there in that area, somewhere. Eventually, they'll leave that peninsula, they'll head back to the northeast, they'll get out of it, but not for a while. So at the point of this text, they are still on their way to Sinai. And in chapter 19, they will finally get to Mount Sinai, and we learn there that it is the third new moon since they've left Egypt. That means it's been a little over two months, depending on what you pinpoint as the the moon pattern when they left. I mean, they left right after Passover, which was the 14th of the month, so it's been about two and a half months, most likely here, that they're in this, this part of the journey. In chapter 15, they've grumbled. In chapter 16, they've grumbled. In chapter 17, they grumble. But we'll cover all that after we've read the text. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of Yahweh, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. 
And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test Yahweh? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to Yahweh, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And Yahweh said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested Yahweh by saying, Is Yahweh among us, or not? So the congregation, moving down, passing through the wilderness of Sin, again on the, right there on the western gulf above the Red Sea. So they're traveling down the western edge of the Sinai Peninsula. And they camp at Rephidim. We don't have a pinpoint location for exactly where that is, but it's in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. And here, they end up recognizing that there's no water to drink. And so, what do they do? Do they pray to the Lord and ask the Lord to provide? No. They get angry, and they quarrel with Moses. Moses' response to them is twofold. Why do you quarrel with me? So what's this got to do with me? And also, why do you test Yahweh? Moses is but a man. What do you expect him to do in response to your your problem? But also, Moses recognizes that they are rebelling against God. They're not only putting Moses to the test, they're putting the Lord to the test. They are showing a distrust in God's to God's provision for them, God's ability to provide for them, to care for them. They've challenged it. They don't think he can. They've tested him. And they respond. The people grumbled. That's the third time it's been said that they grumbled in the book of Exodus so far. It'll happen more in Numbers. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Back in Egypt, they would have had water to drink. Out here in the wilderness, you can only go so long without water. We're all going to die. Our children, our livestock, everything's going to die. Nothing's going to make it. Why did you do this? Why not leave us alone? That's what they're asking. God has saved them. God has rescued them from their complaints about how bad stuff was in Egypt. And in response to his salvation, they complain. That is the sinful nature, is it not? So it is that they've done in the past. It's worth quickly revisiting chapters 14, 15, and 16. The people, as they saw Pharaoh chasing them, pinning them against the Red Sea, went to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? 
Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. So they've just seen all the plagues, the miracles God has done for them, and they still don't believe. They see an enemy that makes them afraid, and they fall. Chapter 15. After they sing, after they've seen God wipe out the Egyptian army in the sea, after the Red Sea has been parted for them and they crossed it on dry ground, they come to Mara, M-A-R-A-H, which is also going to be somewhere along that western edge of the Sinai Peninsula as they're traveling south. And they grumble against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? After the Lord provides for them there, chapter 16, they're going to grumble again. Would that we had died by the hand of Yahweh in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And God provides again. So chapter 15, what will we drink? Chapter 16, what will we eat? Chapter 17, what shall we drink? They don't trust. But this does very much specifically, I believe, take us to the Sermon on the Mount to Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. It's part of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verse 11, Give us this day our daily bread. Just as God, for the 40 years worth of time that the Israelites wandered in the wilderness, gave them bread each day on the ground, each morning when they went out of their tent, there it was, all they had to do was pick it up. God provided for his people in the wilderness all of their needs for 40 years. Give us this day our daily bread. That's what Jesus teaches us to pray, that we would trust in him for all things. And truly, that's going to continue on as the chapter goes. So you've got the section about not laying up treasure for yourself in, on earth, but rather in heaven. But then we get this section about being anxious. And notice how well it fits. With the Israelites grumbling about not having the things that they think they need. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. I pause there for a little emphasis. Nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, in those rare years where Epiphany runs the full length of the Epiphany season, so your basically your rare year where Easter is as late as it can be, gives you eight 
Sundays of Epiphany. That eighth Sunday of Epiphany, the gospel reading is that Matthew 6 text that we just read. But how fitting it is to pair up with this Exodus 17 text. And they go hand in hand. Would have been a great, great combo. Instead, we'll have to look and see the connection between Exodus and John 4. But for now, God's going to provide this people with drink. And that, by the way, is the connection with John 4, that Jesus will provide living water. So here's the Lord providing water for his people. God provides the living water, which we can talk about more as we get to John 4. So Moses takes the people's complaint to God. What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. This is what they should have done. They should have taken their complaint to God. We're thirsty. We're, we're scared. We don't know what to do. We're, we're afraid we're going to die. Lord, help us. Again, seek first the kingdom of God. All these things will be added to you. Trust him. He'll care for you. Trust him. Moses takes his concern to God. They are almost ready to stone me. That proves to be quite true, actually. In Numbers chapter 14, they attempt, they begin to attempt to kill Moses and Aaron, Caleb and Joshua, but the Lord prevents it. Here, God answers him, telling him to take the leaders of the people, take the staff, his staff, strike the rock at Horeb, so Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. They're almost there. And it will provide water for the people to drink. That's quite a miracle when you think about it. Can you imagine just going up to a rock? Maybe you've got one of those neighborhoods where it's got the fancy rock uh, decorations at the front of it. Some big stone that's been brought in. Maybe put around a sign that has the name of the neighborhood on it. Can you picture taking a stick? going up to that rock and just smacking it and suddenly it just starts spewing water it's not the way the world works it's not the way creation works this is a miracle of God in order to provide for the needs of his people they may be grumbling they may be faithless but the Lord is not he provides for them anyway the difficult note in this Old Testament reading is that he took his staff and he struck the Nile. That is not a detail that we saw in Exodus 14, where we're simply told that Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and then Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. It's not to say he didn't strike the ground and then stretch out his hand, or that he stretched out his hand and then struck the ground. I don't know, Um, but Exodus 17 is just as much of a a true and accurate account as Exodus 14. So we consider that he did both. You know, we can picture him putting both hands on his staff. He's got it, you know, vertical, straight up and down. He does a quick, like, drive downward into the ground. And then he lifts it up into the air. Or maybe he, he lifts it up into the air in one hand and makes a motion, kind of a wave over the water and then takes his staff into two hands, almost like a, like he's holding an axe, and then he chops the ground. I don't know. 
but we take God at his word. And here the Yahweh himself very specifically says that Moses used that staff to strike the Nile. I suppose the other way you could read it, though, is that the Nile is struck not physically, but in the sense that the Nile is struck, that is, the Nile is attacked. And that attack can be more than just physical. As we would talk about how people could be attacked by uh, insults, a barrage of words. So Moses waving his hand over the sea and the Lord then striking it, the Lord parting the sea, even though it never physically looked like it was touched, that could be viewed as an attack. So I think you could take it that way as well. Uh, the Hebrew verb here is is the verb for to smite. And in its wider range of definitions, things like hit and strike and strike down, uh, even attack and destroy, all those kinds of words are in play for this Hebrew verb. Nakah. Nakah is the word. So Moses does it, and it does exactly as God says that it will. And water comes forth from the rock. And Moses gives names to the place. Massa and Meribah. Massa means testing. Meribah means quarreling in Hebrew. And so, because they quarreled, because they tested which is what Moses records for us there in verse 7. And their test of God, is Yahweh among us or not? Does he care? If he's here, why is this happening to us? And that's going to sound an awful lot like our own conversations today, our own doubts today. Why do, why do bad things happen to good people? Is there really a God? Does he really care? Those can be some dangerous questions. They're refutable, they're answerable. But that's the devil at work, causing us to wonder if God really cares, if he really keeps his promises. He does. He really does. So if you're challenged by some of those doubts, I can't possibly name all those doubts that are going to vary so much based on what temptations befall you. But for example, some of the ones that I said... Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, the first of all, there's the question itself. There are no good people. Bad things happen because we're sinners, and sin brings death. I deserve to die. I don't even deserve to breathe the breath of air. I just breathed. Thanks be to God he gave me mercy and another day. If he chooses to put an end to that, I deserve it. However, in Christ there is forgiveness for that sin my sin and yours and we get to live forever that's a promise that has been given so yes you will suffer now and prayerfully we get to suffer on the name of Christ rather than suffer uh, for just foolish worldly things may we suffer for the gospel for the sake of his name that's just one example Um, again if you have doubts if you're struggling with something like that please speak to your pastor If you're wondering, is Yahweh among us or not, please speak to your pastor. I can tell you in short that the answer is yes. Yes, he is. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And there's such beauty in that. But your own pastor, he can put Christ on your lips and your tongue in word and sacrament. 
in ways that I cannot over a podcast. So go, speak to him. Let the man that the Lord has called to serve you in your midst, let him serve you. Our epistle for the weekend from Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 8. We've been really bouncing around in the book of Romans. So we were in chapter 5 verses 12 through 19 two weeks ago. Last week we were in chapter 4 verses 1 through 8 and then 13 to 17. And now we're back in chapter 5. So we kind of went C A B if you wanted to look at the order of those texts. And even that we're skipping over all kinds of verses. We're going to jump into Ephesians next week, and then the week after that, return to Romans with chapter 8. So, a little all over the place. Come summer, when we get to the season of Pentecost here in year A, we're going to spend a lot longer time in the book of Romans. We'll be in it starting with proper 3, in those years that have the earliest Easter possible, and going all the way up through proper 19. So there could be 17 weeks in a row where we're in Romans this summer. But for now, we get just a few glimpses at the book here in the season of Lent. So we're going to start, we've got 1 to 8, verses 1 through 5 make up a paragraph, so we'll do those first. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that... But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is about as deep a paragraph as you might find in Scripture. Therefore, so connecting back to chapter 4, what has been said before this, we're justified by faith, not by works of the flesh. No man can boast. I know that's a little Ephesians there, but yes, justified by faith. Salvation is a gift. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As a reminder, the word justified, how are we made righteous? How are we made right? Is it by my own doing? Is it by God's doing? And as Christians, we believe, as Lutherans, we believe that it is by God's doing, not our own. Peace with God. This is peace, not as in quiet. This is peace as in the opposite of war. In my sin, I was battling against God. I sought to put God to death on the cross. All of our sins put him there, right? My sin separated me from God. Jesus, through his work, through his death and his resurrection, has made peace for us with God. Our rebellion has been put to an end. Our sin that forever separated us has been washed away. We are with God. We are his. We are his family, even now. This is such good news. If it depended on our works, so it's not, it's by faith. It's a gift. But if it depended on our works, could we actually know if we had peace with God? It would be so constantly enshrouded with doubt. Have I really been good enough? 
Have I been faithful enough? Have I been righteous enough? Have I, have I done the good things God gave me to do today? Am I holy enough? Have I done it? And the answer to those questions, quite honestly, would always be no, because I'm still a sinner. If it depends on my works, I could never know that I had confident peace with God. But again, thanks be to God, it's not based on my works. It is through Christ himself. It is a gift. This is what's going to be said down in verse 8. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But we'll, we'll come back to that. Verse 2, talking about deep. Almost every word in that verse can be unpacked. Through him, that is Jesus, by his death, by his resurrection, by his work, not ours. Through him, he's the door, he's the ticket. We have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Like I said, it almost all needs to be unpacked. So, should we walk backwards, maybe? This grace in which we stand. Grace, the gift of God. So we would talk about his forgiveness and his life and his salvation that he has given unto us. Again, such fantastic good news. And we stand in that. Perhaps one of my favorite Luther quotes ever. Maybe it is my favorite. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Luther liked having these arguments with Satan. He encouraged us to do the same. The devil's trick is to take your sin and hold it over your head and say that God can't forgive you for this. There is no forgiveness for this. God forgave you for this once, but he's not going to forgive you this time, not the seventeenth time. He holds that guilt against us. Luther tells us, go ahead, tell him he's right. And then remind him who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That's the grace in which we stand. We shouldn't stand. We, we have no right on our own to stand. We are broken. We are sinners. We have failed the glory of God. Which is Romans 3 verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 5 later in this chapter that we all die because all sin. It's verse 12. And yet we stand. We stand because we are in his grace. We are in his forgiveness. We have his promises. We have his life in us. We receive this by faith. We don't earn it. And we can't achieve it. You can't buy it but it's given, and we simply receive it by faith. It's hard to come up with analogies for that. The, the one that I've used recently is the picture of a necklace. That is, you think of those commercials where a man, you know, uh, those K jeweler commercials or whoever, the man is giving his wife a nice new necklace. He goes and he, he undoes the clasp and then he puts it around her neck and he, he fastens it behind her neck. He does that for her. He has 
placed a gift upon her. She had nothing to do with it. She didn't earn it. She didn't buy it for herself. It was a gift. It was given. And then once it's given, even in the giving, she does not actively receive it, but passively. Yes, she does not fight back, and you can, you can get into that with our faith, too. We can fight back. We can say, no, we don't want your forgiveness. We can reject it. We are capable of that, and people, many, have made shipwreck of their faith, as Paul talks about in the epistles. But we receive by faith. Trust. We trust that his promises are true. We trust that his gifts are for you and for me and for all who are far off. So we've also obtained access. We're in it. You think of maybe a room that you couldn't get in before. Or a a cabinet in, in the house if you're a child that your parents had kept off limits to you. And then suddenly now you have access. It's been granted. You have permission to go there. We have not only permission, we have, again, the gift to be in that grace. We've received it through Jesus, through his work for us. Already done, already accomplished. Such good news. Like I said, there's a lot in that verse, and that's just the first part. Now we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Maybe we should go backwards again. Glory of God. Glory is the thing that makes somebody worth looking at. What is it that causes them to be lifted up for people to see? Glory. And the glory of God is certainly his mercy and his salvation and what he has done for us again in Christ. And ultimately, it is being with him in paradise, seeing him face to face. And so that is our hope. And it's not a hope that's weak. That's the world's hope. The world's hope is, I hope my football team wins the Super Bowl this year. I hope that the weather is nice today. That is worldly hope. You don't know that it's going to happen. In fact, the reason that you're hoping for it is because it's probably not going to happen. If you already know the weather's supposed to be good today, you you don't really hope the weather's going to be good today. Hope in Scripture is a different kind of thing. Hope in Scripture is certain. It is fixed. Because it's not based on things that change. Remember the Hebrews passage that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God is unchanging. Jesus Christ already died and he already rose. He's already conquered death. There is no change in that. Death can't suddenly pop back up to Well, it was never alive, but you get the picture. It can't just resurrect itself. It's dead. It's been put to death by Christ on the cross. It cannot be undone. Your sin has already been destroyed, defeated, and forgiven. We have a sure hope because the Lord is faithful. And so we rejoice. To rejoice is to take joy again. 
right? We get the, the little English prefix re, which is to do something again. To renew is to make it like new again. And then joy, rejoice, take joy again. As Christians, our joy is in Jesus. Our joy is in God. Our joy is in the paradise promise. Joy is what we treasure. This is what we long for. We don't long for the things of this world. We long for him. And so verses 3 through 5, as we get out of that deep discussion uh, of goodness, verses 3 through 5 are challenging in a different way. We rejoice in our sufferings. We take joy again in our suffering. And immediately the American mind says, whoa, hold on, no, no thank you. I don't want any of that. Suffering? Nah. Somebody else can have that. I want I want good times. I want comfort. I want I want happiness. That's the American style of life. Americans are what we would call hedonistic. H-E-D-O. N-I-S-T-I-C, I think I just spelled that right. Hedonism, one of those isms, is the idea that the purpose of life is the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. And that is where American life is right now. I don't know that it's always been there, but it is the aim of American life today. People want to avoid suffering and pain at any cost, and truly any cost. They'll pay whatever it takes, right? Think of the medical industry right now all around us, as people pay all of their money and then some, seeking to avoid pain, seeking to avoid their body decaying. Think of what your neighbor's normal life goal is. Maybe even ask them sometime. What what gets you out of bed in the morning? What are you after? I really look forward to the weekends. That tells you something, right? We tend to have a culture where the goal is to be happy all the time. It's why you get the legal struggles that are going on in the nation around us in regards to things like same-sex marriage. Who are you to tell me I can't be happy? If the goal of life wasn't hedonism to be happy all the time, be pleased by whatever makes us happy, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be culturally in that spot. But that is our culture's aim. So people are chasing whatever makes them happy. And they're building it into the government. They're building it into the culture. Because, well, generally speaking, that's been the way everybody's been going for a long time now. So it really is not that much of a surprise. And then we run into verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings, and it's like a slap in the face. We want to avoid that too, because that would be painful, and so we don't even bother to read this verse. But let's take 3 through 5 in again, and then let's unpack it. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How many of you want hope? And I would, I almost said the earthly hope, I I hope that everybody Christian does. 
As Christians, we want hope. It's what gets us through despair and doubt is, is hope. Knowing what Christ has promised and knowing that he's faithful, knowing he will keep it. Hope. How does Paul say we get hope? From character. And we get character from endurance and we get endurance from suffering. So how do we get hope? By suffering. If you want hope, if you want the promise of the resurrection from the dead, that comes, that hope comes through suffering. And as Christians, we respond, okay, Lord, let me suffer. Let me suffer for your name. Let me suffer for your sake. And this is the main point of First Peter. As Peter writes an epistle to a church, really all the churches in Asia Minor, that are suffering at the hands of Roman persecution. He even tells them in that letter to honor their emperor, the one who's putting them to death, the one in just a couple of years' time will kill him. Honor your emperor. Why does he say it? Because the theme of his letter, as you see throughout, is that our suffering points us to Christ. He even calls suffering a gift. And so here it is as well in Paul's writings in Romans 5. We rejoice in suffering because suffering produces endurance. If everything in your life is always peachy all the time, you don't build endurance. And the first thing that attacks your faith is going to seem like a major crisis. And it might just have been somebody's question. It might not even have been an actual attack. But your faith all of a sudden just unravels because there's no endurance to it. This is the parable of the sower that Jesus tells. Jesus says, Matthew 13, verse 20, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately falls away. And we just tack on the next verse too. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. This has been hedonistic America. The second and third types of soil. And because of it, we're seeing more of the first type of soil, which was the, the, the solid path where uh, the word doesn't penetrate at all, but just gets snatched up by the devil. Taken away. We have a nation of people that even though so many claimed that they had faith, their faith had no root. And so a pandemic strikes, and the churches around the country shut their doors. Some of them, never to reopen again. And that, that was a very minor persecution. It was a persecution, I'm not saying it wasn't, but it was minor. The government didn't come to our doorsteps with guns. They just said, do this. Most of the pastors I know would say that they would do it differently and if they had another chance. The statistics that I've seen, and they're not updated since the pandemic, they were from 2019, is that the Christian church over the last decade leading up to that had lost 1% a year. 
And by that, I mean that in, say, 2009, they were at 73%, and by 2019, they're at 63% of the country. That number surely just dropped off a cliff in the pandemic. But here we are. We had a people who had no endurance. They were used to a life of luxury. Even the church is used to a life of luxury right now, and it shows. We have no endurance. But it is endurance that then produces character. Who you are, how you live. The stories of the martyrs show an incredibly deep faith. It shows their value, their character, how they were generous even to those who persecuted them, how even in the moments before they were killed, they would still seek to share Christ and the reason for the hope that was within them. May the Lord give us such faith. May he give us character, a character that is generous and hospitable, that is loving but also faithful and firm, standing firm. Character produces hope because we know, just as those men and women did, we know that what we have cannot be taken away from us. Try as the devil might, and this is the beauty of Romans 8, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That hope comes from suffering because our sufferings point us to Christ and his suffering for us. So let us not avoid suffering. Don't go chasing after it because that's inviting your neighbor to sin and and we don't seek to do that. But be faithful. And where this world throws persecution at you, don't avoid it. Stand firm and be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. And may we endure in America right now and in the years, the next couple of years, soft persecution that gives us the opportunity to learn to suffer and endure so that when the harder persecutions come, for they will, I don't know when, but if Christ doesn't come back, harder persecution will come upon this land. It goes that way cyclically across the globe. Heavy persecution will eventually come. And may the Lord grant us endurance and character and hope through suffering. Hope does not put us to shame. The devil can war against us as he might. The world can seek to call us hypocrites and tell us that our God is just a myth. They can do whatever they want, but they cannot put us to shame. Because even when they kill us, even when they slit our throat or crucify us upside down or run us through with a spear or feed us to the beasts, they cannot take our hope from us. Because when we next open our eyes, we'll be in paradise. I mean, thanks be to God. 
they can't take that from us. Nothing can snatch us from the Father's hand, John 10, 28. This is what we have. It's been poured into us through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us in the waters of baptism. It is the Spirit that gives us faith and enables us to believe and builds up that faith within us by word and sacrament. All right, let's take in verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I have no idea how we're supposed to read that in church this weekend and not all burst out with the the word that is forbidden in our churches during the season of Lent. How do we not praise God for that good news? And that's truly what it is. While we were still weak, or as Paul says it in Ephesians 2, still dead in our trespasses, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Me, you, all of us. He died for us. And it was the right time. 27, 28, 29 AD, whichever year it would have been, one of those. Jesus died on the cross. And yes, sometimes we think that it would be better if he had died in our time. I mean, think of social media. Think of the news outlets that we have and how we could have reported on it. Now, everybody could see it, and we'd have video documentary evidence. It wouldn't matter. They saw the empty tomb. They still didn't believe. They put God to death. They still didn't believe. They saw the dead rise and walk through Jerusalem. That's Matthew 27. And they still didn't believe. There are those who will always reject Christ and his gospel. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Notice righteous and good are contrasted here. Um, I would encourage you in this light to take good as perhaps more like great and righteous as holy. So how many people are going to go out of their way to die for just a, a, a faithful Christian? Versus how many people are going to go out of their way to die for somebody they view as great? So, um, lay their life on the line for a celebrity or think that they're doing their country a service by dying to save their president. Somebody great. But not for somebody righteous. And yet you and I were neither. We were neither righteous nor good. And yet God shows how much he loved us And that while we were still sinners, unrighteous and evil, Jesus did die for us. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God. He died for me. He died for you. He rescued us from sin, death, and the devil. He rescued us from our own sinful nature. He rescued us from our own rebellion against him. He has created faith in our hearts. He's poured out his Holy Spirit upon us. 
He has given us hope. Lastly, now we come to our gospel text from John chapter 4. And we're going to cover the context of it more as we go instead. I normally start with context, but it'll, it'll matter. It'll enrich our study to keep going with it. So at the moment, we know that he has spent his time in the wilderness with John. He's been baptized. He's now passing through Samaria on his way back to Galilee. That's where we pick up in John chapter 4 with this text. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. We'll come back to that. It's very important in the next couple of paragraphs. But for now, it is a region So, as the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by Assyria in 722 B.C., southern kingdom of Judah destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 B.C., and Babylon had already conquered Assyria too, and eventually Persia conquers Babylon and sets the Jews free and sends them home, at that point it becomes a a Persian province, Judea, and to its north will be the province of Samaria, regions. And... Persia falls to Greece, and Greece gets in a self-conflict. It eventually becomes Rome that occupies this land. So these are Roman territories. They're no longer their own separate kingdoms. And so Samaria is that region, as you go from where Jerusalem would be on the map, just a little north of it, up to Galilee by the Sea of Galilee, 50, 60 miles to the north. And so, as Jesus passes through, he's going to come by a town called Sychar. Now, Sychar is going to be located near, about, perhaps is, the Old Testament city of Shechem, which was between the valley, sorry, the, the mountains of Gerizim and Ebal, found in Deuteronomy chapter 27, 28, 29, that kind of a region there. Shechem is the city from Genesis chapter 34 that Jacob and his family on their way back from his time in Haran, 20 years, where he had married Leah and then Rachel and had 11 of his 12 sons. Then he's moving home, he's returning, but he stops and he spends a significant chunk of time, we're not told how long, but he spends time in Shechem. And there he buys a piece of land, so forth. We won't cover the the rape of Dinah that happens and then the the conflict with the Shechemites and what Levi and Simeon do and tricking them and all that stuff. We'll, We'll leave that out. But when Jacob dies, in Genesis chapter 48, he's about to die, verse 22, He gives Joseph an additional piece of land. And in English, most English translations will mention a mountain slope, but the Hebrew word there is actually Shechem. It appears that Jacob, in that moment, gives Shechem to Joseph. And looking at a map of your Old Testament and finding Shechem, and then looking at a New Testament map that actually includes Sychar, 
if you find them, both, they are roughly in the same spot. So it seems to be that that's the referent point. And so Jacob, as he lived there for that time, had a well. And Jesus, being tired, goes and sits by the well. And it's about the sixth hour. That sixth hour thing's going to matter quite a bit here, actually. What's it mean? What time does the sixth hour point to? And I think most people would understand the sixth hour is referring to noon, counting from dawn. And that is what you see in the other gospel accounts. So Matthew chapter 20, the parable, parable that you have where the, the master goes out into the marketplace and he finds workers for his vineyard. He goes out one hour after another, every few hours, and eventually the 11th hour goes out again. The 11th hour is 5 o'clock in the evening. The sun is about to set. The day to work is about to be over. But it also shows up in texts like Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, in regards to the crucifixion, that Jesus will be crucified in the morning. He'll be hung on the cross. And by the sixth hour, which is noon, Jesus will then be there on the cross still, and the whole land will suffer darkness from the sixth until the ninth hour, from noon until three, and then he dies. And most people then assume John is reckoning time in the same way, and so here, the sixth hour becomes noon. But let me throw you a curveball. And it's going to be based on John's account, how John speaks. There are three such accounts, and we're going to come back to the first one, but the latter one, and the one that throws, throws the wrench into this, John chapter 19, verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He, that is Pilate, said to the Jews, Behold your king. This causes some conflict. Because if we see that sixth hour as being from dawn, then we're talking about noon. And Pilate still has Jesus on trial. He has not condemned him yet to death and hung him on the cross. But the other Gospels all say he did that by 9 a.m. Here it's noon, and he's not crucified yet. What's going on? And this is where we have to learn that the Roman society reckoned time starting at midnight. Kind of like we do, but a little bit more perhaps like military time, where they count by all 24 of them. So starting from midnight, the sixth hour in John 19 verse 14 would not be noon, it would be 6 a.m. And that then fits, and it puts Jesus on the cross in the morning, still has him on the cross in the, around lunchtime and by his death. The other time, again, that it shows up is John chapter 1, verse 39. He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. They stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. If it's the 10th hour from dawn, it's 4 o'clock in the afternoon already. There's not really much of the day left. It's kind of an odd statement. So these are men who had sought after Jesus, and they stay with him for the day. Well, they'd have stayed with him until nightfall and then gone home and went to bed. But if it's 10th hour from midnight, then it's 10 a.m. 
they stay with him for the day. They're with him until nightfall. So they're with him from 10 until 6. They're with him all eight hours. So it seems to be that John reckons time by the Roman system, not by the one typical of the other gospel writers. If this is the case, then we should consider that John 4 reckons time the same way as John 1 and John 19. That here, John is counting the Roman way, not starting at 6 a.m. And if that's the case, it undoes the story of the woman at the well the way that we've traditionally told it within our, our own Christian circles, not saying anything about how it was originally written, but just the way that it's normally talked about. So let's take a look at the story of the woman at the well. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now this doesn't cover what I was just mentioning. Our, our traditional interpretation really comes in with the next paragraph. But straightforward stuff for now. Again, Samaria was the former capital city of Israel. Israel, the northern kingdom, Judah, the southern kingdom, which is where Jews then come from, constantly at war, nearly the entire history that they had from when they split in the 900s BC until Israel was defeated by Assyria in 722 BC, so roughly 250 years or so. And they're, again, battling civil war for most of that time. Because I call it civil war because they're both God's people faithless as most of them were. So that's why they have nothing to do with each other. There's still that hatred between the peoples. It runs deep, culturally, and it has a long time. The Jews think themselves better. I think it's safe to put it that way. So the disciples had gone off to get food. He's left there, and a woman approaches from Samaria. I mean, he's in Samaria, so it makes sense that she's a Samaritan woman of that region. He asks her for a drink. She's startled by this because, again, he's a Jew and he's male. The whole male-female thing matters here as well. That typically, not only does a Jew not speak to a Samaritan, but a man would not normally address her in public in the same manner. They just don't have the, the cultural interactions that are normal among American society today. Although more and more so today, people don't address each other in public anyway. We're too busy to being distracted by other things. Jesus answers, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, he would have given you living water. 
she picks up on the idea he's speaking about himself, and so she points out he can't draw water. He's got nothing to draw it with. Where is he going to get that water? It already sounds good to her. Living water? That sounds, that sounds great. And she asks if he's greater than their father Jacob, who gave them this well and even used it himself. And the answer to that question is yes, he is greater than Jacob. Jacob is his. So Jesus promises that everyone who drinks that living water, it is going to well up inside of him as a spring of water to eternal life. Never thirsty again. What is this living water specifically? I think we'd probably point to being Jesus. I mean, we could talk about it as faith. We could talk about it as the water of baptism. We can talk about it as our salvation. It is the spirit who dwells within us. All of these kinds of phrases, I think, are, are within the, the realm of our conversation. And so she asked for that water. For obvious reason, she doesn't want to be thirsty anymore. That sounds fantastic. So she doesn't quite understand what the water is. And Jesus plans to teach her. And that gets us to the next paragraph. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. The one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In our gospel reading for the weekend in all of our churches, um, we'll cover that far at least, and many churches will end there. So you end with that great little proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah that is of old, that has been waited for for generations in Israel. But again, it's this paragraph where our normal understanding of the text comes. So Jesus will question this woman about her husband, And it ends up that she's had five, and now she's with a man who's not her husband. And so it's looked at as she's an adulteress. And part of that is, again, the timing. That John says it's the sixth hour. If this is based on the way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record time, then the sixth hour makes it noon. And the noon is not a time that is normal in the ancient world to go to the water, to go to the well to get water. It was a task that women of the household would do. They usually did it in the morning, before it got hot. They would go out, gather water for their family for the day, and they'd do it again at dusk, once the heat of the day had passed, in order to draw water that would sustain their family for the night. Here, the argument is she's there at noon because she's an outcast. The community hates her, despises her as an adulteress, a prostitute, or whatever it is that she is. And that's connected with the timing and then what Jesus has just talked to her about. 
I'm going to make the case that we don't know any of that for certain. The text doesn't actually say any of that. And so what we instead see is that if John reckons time consistently in his gospel, she's actually at the well at six in the morning. Now, that means that Jesus and his disciples, they've been walking very early in the day, or they even walked through the night, part of his exhaustion, perhaps, if he hasn't had a solid bed in which to rest his head. But if it's six in the morning and he's out at the well, She's coming to the well as a normal part of her daily routine and not as an outcast at an odd time when it was too hot. He asks her to bring her husband. He's going to teach her. This is proper conduct. The normal pattern would be for a man to speak to the man, for the man to teach the man, and for a man then to teach his wife. We see Paul say this in 1 Corinthians 14, that the woman should not ask a question in the church, but the ask of her husband at home, and he will teach her. And so she declares she doesn't have a husband. Jesus concurs, and then says, again, part of what leads people to think of adultery, that she's had five husbands, and the one she has now is not her husband. Text isn't clear, though. The text doesn't actually specify what these marriages meant. Has she been divorced five times? That could be. It could, and that's, I think, the normal interpretation, perhaps. What if she's widowed five times? That could also be. The text doesn't say otherwise. What if the man that she's living with now is an adulterous relationship? He's already married. She's the woman on the side. Could be. But what if the man she's living with now isn't a sexual relationship, but she's a servant in a house? Because as a widow, she fell in hard times. She couldn't care for herself. But there was a family in her community that could, so they took her in, and she helps care for the home. That could be two. There's not enough here to know. So it's a curveball. I I realize that, but I think it's worth walking it back for a moment and seeing this. Because this woman is our sister in Christ. She's a sinner, regardless. But she's forgiven by Jesus. And we should seek to speak truly about her. Even though truly about her means we can't say too much in this case. Now, uh, one of the commentaries I looked at, uh, Dr. Weinrich's commentary for the Concordia Commentary series on the book of John, he points out a couple of interesting things here. Old Testament texts combining marriage and wells were actually common. It's where Isaac's wife, Rebecca, is met for the first time in Genesis 24, as Abraham's servant meets her there. And there's the offer Right, the request, I should say, give me a drink. Jacob in Genesis 29 will first meet Rachel at a well, and Moses will first meet his wife Zipporah at the well in Exodus 2. And I think where Dr. Weinrich is going with this is he, he sees in the early part of John's gospel a frequent focus on wedding, 
So you've got the first miracle of Jesus, the, the turning water into wine at Cana, the wedding at Cana. And then in chapter 3, verse 29, the words of John the Baptist about the bride and the bridegroom. And that's connected to his conversations around purification and thus water. So this combination of water and marriage in John's gospel dominates pretty early. And it's here again. It doesn't seem to dominate as the gospel continues, but it he's might be onto something, at least noticing this and bringing it out. Anyway, because of what Jesus has said, she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. He knows her, even though he doesn't know her. She has never met him before, and yet he knows all about her. That's what she'll tell her, her people, too. She points out that her fathers, that is the Samaritans, going back for generations, have worshipped on this mountain. That would be a reference to Mount Gerizim. And Josephus, the, the Jewish historian at the end of the first century, claims that the Samaritans in the 4th century BC built a temple on that mountain. So, it seems to be the connection. But you say in Jerusalem is the place people ought to worship. That you say is not Jesus, but Jews. So we worship here. The Jews say it's not good to worship here. We're supposed to worship in Jerusalem at the temple, which is actually true at that time historically. But Jesus changes it. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And it's true because the church is going to be scattered throughout the world. The temple in Jerusalem will be torn down. The temple in Samaria will be will already be gone. Archaeology has perhaps confirmed that temple that Josephus mentioned, by the way, uh, finding in that area uh, a nice large square building shape remain, and the the courtyard layout that was around it. You worship what you do not know. So the Samaritans, basically Gentiles at this point from their Old Testament rejection of of faith, we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. It is from the Jews, it is from Judah that the Messiah will come. This has been prophesied going back over a thousand years. Hour is coming and is now here. Note, is now here. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives us faith, brings us to repent of our sins and builds us up and encourages us in our faith, forgiveness of sins, and truth, which we would talk about as the Word. God's Word is the truth. Father is seeking such people to worship him, like the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew's Gospel, where he goes, he offers the the feast to the Jews for whom he's prepared it, they've rejected it, so he offers it to the nations. Tells his servants, bring people in off the streets. So here is Jesus inviting this woman in. She answers, I know that Messiah is coming. We learn that that is also Christ. Messiah, Mashiach, is the Hebrew word for anointed one. Christ, Christos, is the Greek word for anointed one. So they're one and the same title, just from different languages. Anointed one. Jesus is our anointed one. They anointed their prophets, priests, and kings, and Jesus is all three of those for us. Thanks be to God. When he comes, he will tell us all things. That's pointing to John 14, verse 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
she's acknowledging that there is a Messiah who's coming. And she's looking for him to come. And thus Jesus, the bold statement at the end, I who speak to you am he, declaring himself to be that Messiah. Now, optional texts, I'm just going to read them both together. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Skip, skip several verses. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. and He stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That would be the end of the text for those who have the optional reading. So, the disciples return from buying food, and they see Jesus having this conversation with a woman, which again, culturally not normal, but they don't press it. They didn't ask, what do you seek? So recognizing Jesus had some kind of a need he was trying to have met, like the water whole thing that we were just talking about. They left it alone, and so she leaves, and she forgets her water. That's the whole reason she came. She might not have even filled it. We're never, never told. She might have gotten so busy, distracted, learning from Jesus that she failed to do the work she was supposed to be doing. And even at that, she goes away empty-handed, But she's not empty-handed. She has Christ now. She has faith now. And she goes and she shares that testimony. This would be another possible knock against the idea that she's an adulteress. If she is the kind of prostitute, adulteress kind of person that she's often made out to be, would the people in the community have even listened to her? I mean, they would have seen her as unclean. They may have avoided her altogether, let alone actually heard her speak and then believed her speech. If she's a a widow in the community, they're more likely to listen. I don't know for sure, but again, it's worth pondering for us, since I think we hear it so often, one way and not the other. Can this be the Christ? Notice she's a missionary. She's sharing the word. She's speaking of Jesus to others, and they go. Now, the gap here, verses 31 to 38, focus on the conversation between Jesus and his disciples. They're still wondering about food and such, but he brings the conversation to the idea of the labor and the harvest, that others have labored, and now it's time for the disciples to enter that labor. So the ground has been worked already. The foundation has been laid This Samaritan woman is an example of that. She heard about the Messiah. She knew the Messiah was coming. Why? The Old Testament and the prophets have proclaimed it, and she's been told about it. She knows that's coming. Now, disciples, pick up where the prophets left off. Show how that is Jesus. And that's all Jesus did. He connected the dots for her. And she believed. And That's the task that we'll see Paul so successful at in his missionary journeys. He goes to the people who are already Old Testament faithful, who believe in the God of the Old Testament, and he shows them how it's pointed to Jesus, and they believe. Many of them do. Not all of them, but many of them do. 
so, the last paragraph here, the people believe. They hear the woman's testimony, they believe, and they go to see Jesus for themselves. They invite him to stay with them. He stays for two days. He cuts his journey where he was going to go to Galilee. He stops, he pauses, he spends time preaching and teaching to them. And by the end of it, it's no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So again, Jesus' point, that the harvest is ready, the work's been done. He's now picked up where that harvest was, and he's brought these men into the kingdom. He's made them his own. And they don't just have it on somebody else's word. They've heard it straight from Jesus himself. They have faith. These men and women of this community, this town of Sychar, part of our our family, those whose faith endured the test of time. So Jesus gives water to drink that wells up in us into eternal life. He gave it to the Samaritan woman. He gave it to the people of her town. And it's the connection point to the Old Testament where God gave water to his people from the rock. God gives us water through Jesus, the gift of faith and baptism from the Holy Spirit that leads to life everlasting. And in paradise, we will truly never be thirsty again. Thanks be to God. Yeah.